Well, good morning. I want to welcome those of you who are here at our Sugarloaf campus where I'm presently teaching and to those at our Mill Creek campus and those who are watching online. That number is growing. We're really thrilled to have you. We are one church in two locations and our Mill Creek campus is located about 20 minutes to the north and I can tell you there's nothing like being there. So I want to encourage you to visit one of our campuses and just see what God is doing in our church. It was the end of my junior year in college. I was as discouraged as I've ever been in my life. I was $2,000 short of being able to pay tuition for the coming year. And trust me, back in that day, that was a lot of money. And frankly, I was out of options. I, I didn't have a, a rich uncle or a Paris Hilton-sized trust fund to pull from. My dad uh, only made $100 a week. I'd taken all the student loans out that was available to me, and there was no way I could make that kind of money with a summer job. Frankly, I thought I was at a dead end. And I'd made up my mind I was going to have to quit school. Uh, I was going to have to forego my senior year. I was going to have to put off finishing my education. And I was going to have to go to work. And I just want to tell you, there really isn't a worse feeling in the world than when you think you're out of options. When you think you're at the dead end of a street and there's just no other place to go. There are people in prison today because they felt like they were out of options and so they embezzled from the company or they robbed a convenience store or maybe they even committed murder. There are people that are no longer even alive today because they felt like they were out of options and so they just took their own life. Perhaps you're on the verge of giving up on a marriage or a dream or a friend or school or even life itself because you've absolutely convinced yourself you're out of options. You have nowhere else to turn. You have no one else you can turn to, and you're at a dead end in the road. Well, the good news is we're beginning a series today that we're calling out of options. Because we want to help you know where to go when you do hit those times, and we all do, when we think we don't have any choices left to us, we don't have any available alternatives. Now, here's the good news. There are some real-life situations in the Bible that involve real people who appeared to be out of options. In fact, when you read their story and you kind of stop before you get to the end, you think to yourself, these people are out of options. But they learned a valuable lesson on what to remember at that moment. And if you're at that moment in your life right now and you're saying to yourself, am I ever glad I came today? Am I ever glad I tuned in to hear this message today? Then this is the lesson I want you to take with you throughout this entire series. With God, there are always options. You may be out of options. The people you talk to may be out of options. You may have everybody and his brother telling you you're out of options. But with God, there are always options. So you may feel like you've hit a dead end. But with God, dead ends can actually be new beginnings. And the first person that's going to teach us this lesson, believe it or not, and how he learned this lesson, is a 14-year-old high school student. Yeah, not a man. He's just 14 years old. He's barely into his teenage years. His name is Daniel. And if you brought a copy of God's Word or if you brought a smartphone or an iPad, iPad or whatever it is you might use, 
I want you to turn to a book by that name. It's called Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. It's uh, right after Psalms and Proverbs. If you find that those books, you just keep turning right, and you'll run into the book of Daniel. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 1. Now, the story that we're going to read takes place about 2,600 years ago. The year's around 605 B.C., and this is how we're introduced to his situation. We're in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, one of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel was if they obeyed him and if they followed him, he would bless them. But if they disobeyed him and rebelled against him, they would exchange the comforts of freedom for the chains of bondage. Now, they had had fair warning. It's not like God had not told them what was about to happen. Over and over and over and over, God had sent prophets like Isaiah like Zephaniah, like Jeremiah, like Habakkuk. And they would go to Israel and they would plead with Israel to repent and they would warn them of what was going to happen if they didn't, but those words fell on deaf ears. Now, let let me tell you something about God and His promises. God keeps His promises, but He makes good promises and bad promises. And He keeps them both. If God promises good will happen to you if you do this, good will happen to you if you do that. But if God promises bad will happen to you if you do that, and you do that, bad will happen to you. Well, God had made a promise to Israel, if you don't listen to me, don't follow me, don't obey me, you will be conquered. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Israel's been conquered. Jerusalem has been captured by the pagan nation of Babylon, ruled by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Well, here's what would happen. It was kind of a strange kind of a, of, of a ritual that they would have. But whenever uh, Babylon or other countries like Babylon would go in and conquer a nation, one of the things they would do is they would collect the idols of that country uh, that, that that country worshipped to prove that their gods, quote unquote, were actually bigger and stronger and more powerful than the gods of the country that they conquered. Well, the problem was Israel didn't worship idols. So there was no idol, there were no idols to take back to to Babylon. So instead of doing that, they went into the temple and took all of the articles and all the utensils that they found, and and he brought them to the house of his God to humiliate the Jews and to let them know, I don't know what God you think you worship, but the gods that we worship are much more powerful than yours. Then there was something else that Babylonians would do, which really was kind of a wise and a smart thing. We pick this up in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, this was really kind of, of, of a wise thing. Whenever they would conquer a country, one of the things they would begin to do is they would begin to go and find the best and the brightest young men in that country. They looked for the most attractive, the smartest, the socially well-to-do. Uh, today we would call it the, the creme de la creme. 
They would be the first-round draft pick. They were the five-star recruits. And they would find the best young men that they could find, and, and, and they would bring them back to their country. And then what they would do is they began to kind of brainwash them and indoctrinate them. And, and they gave them kind of a, what you might call an intellectual and a mental and a spiritual extreme makeover. And they had one goal in line in mind. They wanted to make them completely Babylonian. They wanted to take all of the Jewishness out of them. They wanted to take everything that had been taught and learned from their parents and from their homeland, and they wanted to make them completely one of them. Well, they came under the direct authority of the king. So the story continues in verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. In other words, they would be educated. They would, they, would, they would go through their indoctrination, their brainwashing, their training. Then they would stand before the king. And if they passed that final examination, they would be put in some of the highest positions in all of the kingdom. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, these young men had it made. They were given a full scholarship to the University of Babylon, which in that day was kind of the Harvard of the world. They were given Babylonian names. They were given Babylonian clothes. And all of this was for one purpose. I mean, the books that they read, the clothes they wore, the school they attended, the language they spoke, even the names that they were given, what were they doing? They were saying, we want you to start thinking like a Babylonian. We want you to start talking like a Babylonian. We want you to start living like a Babylonian. We want you to start acting like a Babylonian. Now, let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with studying in the world's universities. There's nothing wrong with wearing the world's clothes. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the world's culture or speaking the world's language. So far, so good. But then Daniel does something totally unexpected. And let me just kind of stop right here and say this to all of us in, that are listening. And you claim to be a follower of God. You claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Daniel did something that eventually we all are going to have to do if we're going to follow God, if we're going to do what we believe God has called us to do, if we're not going to always be, you know, goose-stepping behind what everybody else is doing in the world. Daniel did something that you and I are going to have to do if we're going to be faithful to the God that we say we know. He drew a line in the sand. I want you to listen to what we read now in verse 8. But, this is a fly in the ointment. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, when Daniel was asked to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine, evidently an alarm bell went off in his heart. There was a tripwire that was crossed, which alerted Daniel to a line he knew he could not go over. Now, that raises a question. Why would he go to the schools and wear the clothes and speak the language and, and, and talk the talk, yet when he came to eating the king's meat and the king's wine, why is it he drew a line there? Now, I'm going to be very honest. There have been all kinds of speculations. 
And there are all kinds of reasons that different biblical scholars have tried to give and they tried to come up with. The, the, the true hard cold fact is we're not specifically told exactly why he did that. But I will tell you one thing that we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt. We do know that in Middle, Middle Eastern culture, that when you would sit down to eat a, meal, uh, eat a meal, particularly with a ruler or with a king, you were giving a sign of a covenant commitment to that ruler, to that king. In other words, if you allowed yourself to sit down and eat the meal with a royal sovereign or with a king, you were in effect pledging loyalty to that king. You were in effect giving a pledge of allegiance to that king. Daniel had a problem. He had been raised from birth to believe there was really only one true king, and that was God. And any earthly king that he would give allegiance to, he would only give allegiance to if that earthly king had given allegiance to that eternal king. Well, this was a king that didn't even know Daniel's God, didn't even believe in Daniel's God. And Daniel's conscience would not allow him to give that impression. Daniel's conscience would not allow him to pledge allegiance to a king that didn't even know the king of kings and didn't even believe in the God that he loved. Well, here's the problem. It appears as if Daniel's out of options. Because if Daniel sticks to his gun, it's not just that he has drawn a line in the dirt. He's writing his own obituary on his tombstone. So, what's he going to do? Well, this is where we're going to learn this incredible lesson that we find in the dirt of our own lives. See, at every point, at some point in your life, you'll have to find, you'll find dirt, and you'll find a line in that dirt you can't cross. You know deep down it's wrong to go over that line. You know deep down that's a line God would tell you not to cross. You know deep down it's a line that your parents taught you growing up. These are lines you cannot cross. And so there's going to be times in your life that you need to remember the lesson I'm about to share with you about the line that you find in the dirt of your own life. And this is the lesson. Never cross a line that God has drawn. Never cross a line that God has has drawn. Now, I want to tell you something. As you go through life and you live long enough, you already know this. As you go through life, you're going, the world's going to tempt you to cross God-drawn lines that you know you should not cross. As you go through life, you're going to find these God-drawn lines that the world will say, go ahead and cross it. And what I want to say to you is, and we're going to learn this today, when you stay on the God side, you stay on the good side. Now, to do that, we follow Daniel's footsteps. And what are those? Well, step one, you've got to resolve to guard your boundaries. That's the first thing you've got to do. You've got to resolve to guard your boundaries. See, Daniel had no problem reading the Babylonian books, no problem speaking the Babylonian language, no problem dressing the in the Babylonian clothes, no problem enjoying the Babylonian culture. But when it came to doing something that would appear to be putting the Babylonian uh, king above God, he drew a line in the dirt. Let's read the verse again. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now keep in mind what's at stake. I want you to go back and pretend that you're one of these guys. You're one of these Hebrew boys. You're one of Daniel's buddies. Or maybe you're Daniel himself. You're, you're a slave. But you've been hand-chosen. You've been hand-picked. You're being trained for a position of honor and power. 
you know that you're going to be given a great salary. You're going to be given the best accommodations. You're going to be given the, the, the finest food and clothing. And all you have to do, just go along and get along. Just take what's given, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, and happy days will be here again. You say, well, gosh, that sounds simple enough, and, and it does. And, and, and listen, let me just say this. There were all kinds of reasons for Daniel to say yes. He was on his own. Nobody back home would ever know what he was going to do. Everybody else was going to eat it. And hey, look, it's great food. Steak, twice-baked potato, apple pie, all washed down with Cabernet. I mean, I mean, what's wrong with that? But here's a problem. Daniel had boundaries. Boundaries that his parents had taught him. Boundaries that the Spirit of God had put in him. Boundaries that the Word of God had spoken to him. So regardless of where these boundaries came from, Daniel now knows this is a line I can't cross. I cannot move on the other side. And, and, and listen now, this is not a matter of diet. It was a matter of devotion and dedication. There was a line in the dirt, and Daniel finally had to decide which side of that line am I going to be on. And I'm just going to say it to you again. As you go through life, you're going to come across these lines. As you, as you, as you, as you walk in the dirt of your life, there are going to be lines. Sometimes you will cross them. Sometimes you know God has crossed them. And you're going to have to decide, okay, am I going to do what everybody else is going to do and cross on the other side of that line or not? Someone has wisely said this. There's a choice you have to make in everything you do, but you must always keep in mind the choice you make makes you. That's true. So don't discount the pressure now that Daniel was under, because listen, Daniel was under the greatest pressure you can ever put anybody under. You know what that is, right? If, you, if, you, if you're in high school right now, you really know what this is. The greatest pressure people face in their life is not political pressure. It's what? Yeah, peer pressure. He was under tremendous pressure peer pressure. Because remember, he's not the only Jewish teenager that was there. We don't know how many were there. Probably there were hundreds. But Daniel was the first one to stand up and say, no thanks, I'm not ordering off that menu. I, I, I just can't eat that food. Now, <clears throat> just imagine the conversation that took place, because it happens all the time, right? Oh, come on, Daniel. Everybody's doing it. Well, no, not everybody's doing it because I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but Daniel, nobody will ever know. Daniel says, well, yeah, uh, two people will know. I'll know. And God will know. Daniel, you might die. Yeah. But I'd rather, live, I'd rather die for God than to live against God. Now, keep in mind, from all indications, all we know, Daniel is about 14 years of age. That's all, just a teenager. But evidently, something had happened throughout his entire life that had prepared him for this very moment. See, here's the point. Evidently, there were some lines that Daniel had already drawn in his life that he would not cross. So let me just stop and say this. If you're a parent here today, if you have young children, or even if you've got teenagers, if, you are, if you're a parent, one of the greatest things you can ever do for your children while they're young is, number one, teach them to set boundaries. Number two, 
Teach them to set boundaries based on God's word. And then number three, teach them that no matter what else you do, don't you ever cross that boundary. You teach them that they've got to draw lines in the dirt. Teach them to draw lines that they know God would have them to draw. And then you teach them even at the very cost of their life never to cross those lines. Let me tell you why this is so important. If you wait until you're tempted to cross a boundary, to decide what that boundary is, you're too late. If you, if you wait and say, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll cross that boundary when I get to it. I'll cross that line when I get to it. I got news for you. Too late. It's too late to decide what your ethical standards are going to be when you're filling out your first income tax return. It's too late to determine your commitment to financial integrity when the money's on the table. It is too late to decide what your moral standards are going to be when you're tempted to do drugs, get drunk, have sex, or fool around. No, you do it early and you do it now. Know what your boundaries are and then you guard your boundaries. That is step one to drawing a line in the sand. Here's step two. Rely on guidance from heaven. Rely on guidance from heaven. Resolve to guard your boundaries. And then once you do, and you get in that situation where you know you've got to draw a line in the sand, you rely on guidance from heaven. Now listen to this key statement. But Daniel, and this is the key word, resolved he would not defile himself. Now another way to translate that word resolved would be uh, to, the, the phrase to set aside. And Daniel evidently had grown up in a home where he was taught to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was taught that the Bible was God's word. He was taught that there's a right and a wrong, and you can know the difference. And he was taught you should always do what, right, do what is right and never do what is wrong. Well, evidently, Daniel had, early in his life, Daniel had set aside God from everything else, and Daniel had made God first in his heart. And see, this is why I love Daniel. This is why Daniel's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. See, you, you, you could change Daniel's home, but you couldn't change Daniel's heart. You could change his name, but you couldn't change his nature. You, you, you could put Daniel into Babylon, but you couldn't get Babylon into Daniel. There was this God-shaped boundary around Daniel's life. Now, there's a word that we use for God-given boundaries, and you're familiar with it. It's called convictions. And his God-given convictions leads to the next part of this story. We're in verse 8. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, he's saying, Daniel, do you realize what you asked me to do? This could get me killed as well as get you killed. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. 
Now, there's an obvious difference, you can see it, between Daniel and, and, and all these other Jewish boys. There's a big difference between Daniel and his buddies, his three buddies, and all these other Jewish boys because they draw a line in the sand where the other guys don't. You say, okay, what was the difference? I mean, because think about it. There were a lot of similarities. I mean, all the boys were Jews. They'd all been brought up to believe in God. They were all taught God's word. They'd all been all brought up to believe there was a difference between right and wrong. So the question is, so what made Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, what made them so different? Here's the difference. It's the same difference that separates a lot of people in this room. Same difference that separates a lot of people listening from Mill Creek or watching online. The difference was all the boys had beliefs but Daniel and his friends had convictions. Now, there's a difference between holding a belief and having a conviction. Here's the difference. A belief is what you have in your head. A conviction is what you hold in your heart. A belief says, I'm convinced of this truth. A conviction says, I'm committed to this truth. People will argue for their beliefs. They will die for their convictions. And let me tell you why. Beliefs are negotiable. Convictions are not. Beliefs are negotiable. Convictions are not. And there's an even deeper reason here why Daniel and his friends came up with this ingenious plan to keep from crossing that line and to obey what they believed that you know, was God's will for the life. Because here's what I want you to understand. Don't sit there and think that Daniel kind of thought this up on his own, that Daniel just kind of came up with this idea just out of the, you know, thin blue air. No, listen to verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. See, while every other Jewish boy felt like, I got no choice. I'm out of options. I just need to do what I'm told. I just have to go along to get along. Daniel relied on divine guidance. Now listen, there's such a great principle here, and I can tell you first, and I can give you testimony. The principle I'm about to share with you right now has proven itself in my own life time after time after. I can't even tell you how many times I have absolutely seen this principle work out in my own life. Listen to this. When you are determined to follow God's path for your life, God will direct you to the right path. When you are determined to follow God's path for your life, God will direct you to the right path. A wise king, his name was Solomon, in case you've ever heard of him, a man that the Word of God says is the wisest man who ever lived, he put it this way. He said, you trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Now watch this. He will make straight your paths. Remember what I told you at the beginning of the message? When you think you're out of options with God, there's always an option. You're never out of options as long as there is a God on the throne. And when you think you're at a dead end, you think, well, there's just no other way but the world's way. There's no other way but the wrong way. If at that very moment you're tempted to cross that line, if at that moment you'll rely on God to guide you, He will make the right way. He will open the right way. He will show you 
the right way. And oh, by the way, one other thing. Daniel and the eunuch did have something in common. When the eunuch agreed to do what Daniel asked him to do on a trial basis, 10 days, that's all I'm asking, just a little less than two weeks, let us eat the vegetables and drink the water. They both had to wait on God for the results. Because remember, Daniel had never been a vegetarian before. He had no way of knowing how this diet would affect his physical condition. And oh, by the way, there was no guarantee that even if Daniel followed God, he would live. I mean, at the end of those 10 days, he didn't know what he would look like in the eyes of the king. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, let me get this straight. So he's doing what he believed God wants him to do, yes? He's not crossing a line God does not want him to cross, correct. But you're telling me that even though he believes that, and even though he's obeying God, you're telling me that he didn't know if he would live or die? That's right. You say, well, how did he pull that off? How do you pull that off? Here's why. It's true. At the end of those 10 days, he didn't know how he was going to look in the eyes of the king. But the only thing that mattered to Daniel was how he was going to look in the eyes of God. You see, you're going to follow God. You better come to a point in your life, and you better come to a point quick in the world we're living in, in the culture we're living in, and the country we're living in right now. You better come to a point quick what's more important. What people think about you, what your peers think about you, what your professors think about you, or what God thinks about you. And, and you've got to decide in your life, if you're only going to listen to the voice of God, only going to follow the directions of God, and only going to go the way of God. I just want to say this to you before you make up your mind which way you're going to go. There's one thing you can always know. God's path is always straight, and God's way is always right. So number one, you resolve to guard your boundaries. Number two... You rely on guidance from God. Now, when you think you're out of options, you're tempted to cross a line you know you should not cross, here's a third step Daniel took. You remember that God is always working. Now, there's a phrase that's repeated three times in this chapter, and it really is the key, I think, not only to this chapter, but I think it's the key to the entire book, and it really is the key to the life of this young man named Daniel. I want you to go back and listen in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and the wisdom. Now, you heard that phrase repeated, right? Over and over. The Lord gave. God gave. God gave. It was God that caused Israel to fall to the Babylonians. It was God that caused Daniel to be one of the young men chosen to be a part of the king's family and to receive favor with his supervisor. And it was God that gave Daniel wisdom and understanding that was so far above and beyond his peers that ultimately he became the king's right-hand man. He became basically the second in command of the entire kingdom. Now, I don't know where you are in your life right now. 
You, you, you may be one of those people right now, and you're absolutely convinced, hey, buddy, I'm in a room with no doors. I, I'm in a room with no windows. I don't see any way out of my situation. I am completely out of options. You're absolutely convinced there's no way out of your dilemma except you just do what everybody else is going to do. You take the path everyone else is going to take. You make the decision anybody else would make. Even if it means crossing that God-drawn line, even if it means going against your convictions, even if it means saying no to what you believe God would have you to do, you're at that point in your life when you just say, you just don't understand, I just don't have any other choice. Let me just give you one last bit of good news. Even right now, you may not see it, you may not feel it, you may not think it. Right now, God is working. He's working in your behalf. He's working for you. He is always working. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that when um, Daniel's home was destroyed, do you think Daniel thought God was working? Do you think that when Daniel was snatched away from his parents, literally kidnapped from his family and his friends and his home, carted off to a foreign land that didn't even believe in the God that he was taught to serve and love. Do you think he thought God was working? Do you think that when he was forced to go to a Babylonian school and take a Babylonian name and wear Babylonian clothes and speak the Babylonian language, do you think he thought God was working? Well, before you answer that question, <laughs> evidently and obviously he did. But even if he didn't, God was still working. Because, see, God had a plan. And you know what plan God's plan was? God's plan was far greater than Daniel. A plan far greater than Jerusalem. A plan far greater than even the nation of Israel. You say, what was that plan? When you read the entire book of Daniel, it's absolutely incredible. God's ultimate plan for Daniel was to take him to the highest seat of influence and the greatest powers in the ancient world and to do what he needed to do so that Daniel had to be relocated because that's the only way it could happen. The only way that God's ultimate plan for Daniel... God's ultimate plan for the Israelites and God's ultimate plan for the world, for you and for me, the only thing that way that could happen was Daniel had to be relocated. And Daniel would play a key role in the preservation and the, re and the restoration of his people and eventually in the birth of the Savior and the birth of the Messiah. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, all of this takes us to the last verse of this chapter. And before I read it, let me just go ahead and tell you, it seems unimportant. As a matter of fact, it seems unnecessary. It, it's, it's, it's really kind of boring. Here's what we read in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now remember, God's ultimate plan for Daniel was to take him to the highest seat of influence in the greatest powers of the ancient world. And to do that, Daniel had to be relocated. So then we come to this verse. Okay, so he's there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, so? Well, sounds harmless enough, right? But looks can be deceiving. Because here's what the author of Daniel has done. You wouldn't realize this. But in verse 21, what he's actually done is he's hit the fast forward button. You see, who, who, who is Cyrus? Well, he was the king of Persia. And he began reigning in 539 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar has now passed from the scene. You say, well, well what happened to Babylon? 
uh, well, it fell. Yeah, well, who did it fall to? It fell to Cyrus and the Persians. So over a 70-year period, this is now 70 years later, over a 70-year period of time, one king has passed, another king has come, one kingdom has passed, another kingdom has come, and one man is left standing through it all. Daniel, seven decades, right-hand man to the king. First, King Nebuchadnezzar, and then King Cyrus. Now, let's just go back. Daniel's 14 years old. He had no idea when he was taken captive and prisoner to a foreign land that over the next 70 years of his life, he would climb to the highest positions in the courts of both Babylon and Persia. He had no idea that in the last years of his life, he would exercise more power and more influence than any other member of the Jewish race has ever known. He had no idea he would have the great privilege of not only leading his nation back to God and ultimately their return to their homeland according to God's promise, he had no idea he would be instrumental in making sure that the race would be preserved, that the nation would be restored, that the Messiah and the Savior of the world would come. You see, God had a plan for Daniel, and it was far greater than Daniel could have ever had for himself. You know why that plan was carried out? One reason. Because Daniel drew a line in the dirt, in effect, a God-drawn line, and he refused to cross it. So let me just close. Listen to this. Every day of your life, almost every day, you're going to come across a line in the sand. Now, the world will tell you it's okay to cross that line. The world will tell you everybody else is going to cross that line. The world will tell you you better go along and get along and cross that line or you might lose your job. The world will tell you you better cross that line and you better do what you're told to do or all of your friends will desert you. And money and sex will call you on the other side of that line. And you may be even convinced, I'm out of options. I got no choice but to cross that line. So I close with this. Just like Jesus refused to cross the line of taking the easy way out and instead died for our sins, we too, with God's help, can stay on the God side of that line. And I'm telling you, The God side of that line is always the right side of that line, and the right side of that line will always lead to God's best in your life. Let's pray together. If you'll bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. Jesus drew a line in the sand in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't want to die on the cross. It's not because he didn't love us, but he knew what he was about to face, and he did not want to be separated from his heavenly Father. He was out of options, at least it appeared to be, but with God, there's always an option. And for Jesus, that God-sized option was a cross.